Hello and welcome to edition number 1874 of the Whitney Talking News, which we're recording in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 29th of July. My name is Byron Russell and I edited this edition. Beside me at the recording controls we have Peter Brading and our two readers for tonight are Anne Crawford and Nigel James. This week we have items from the Whitney Gazette, the Chipping Norton News and the Oxford Mail. Our first four stories today are all about health matters. So let's begin with the Whitney Gazette headline this week, which is about COVID increases in West Oxfordshire. And that's going to be read to us by Nigel. And this is headed, Market Town Residents Must Battle Formidable Opponent. West Oxfordshire has overtaken the city of Oxford to become the county's worst affected COVID-19 area. Case rates in West Oxfordshire have climbed from 13.6 per 100,000 on May the 28th to 421.2 per 100,000 on July the 16th, with one death also being recorded in the district during the last seven days. The Oxfordshire Clinical Commissioning Group, which plans, buys and oversees health services in the county, has now opened a walk-in vaccine clinic in Whitney, in a bid to halt the spread. Additionally, anyone aged over 18 uh, can receive a first or second dose of the Pfizer vaccine in the Whitney Town Shop at 3 Welch Way until tomorrow. The move follows the success of walk-in clinics in Oxford over the past month, when about 4,650 first and second dose vaccinations were delivered to adults. The latest figures available for West Oxfordshire reveal that two-thirds of people have received two doses of a COVID-19 jab. Data shows that 61,544 people had received both jabs by July the 11th, which equates to 68% of the population aged 16 and over, based on the latest estimates from the mid-2020 for the Office for National Statistics. Of those who have received both jabs, 59,905 were aged 25 and over, making up 73% of the age group. It means that 1,600 people aged between 16 to 25 have also received both doses. The NHS vaccine data also reveals a variation in coverage for residents who are fully vaccinated between different areas across West Oxfordshire with some nearly at the lowest in the entire county. Areas in the highest coverage are Burford and Bryce Norton, with 81.6%, Chadlington and the Witchwoods with 81.1%, and Hanborough and Cassington at 77.9%. However, areas with the lowest coverage are Carterton South, with, 70, with 47.4%, Carterton North with 50.9%, and Whitney Central with 62.5%. The lower rate of vaccinations could be one of the contributing factors to explain the rising rate of infections in the district. Ansaf Atzar, Oxford County Council's Director of Public Health, said, We have been keeping up, uh, we're keeping a wary eye on the whole of the county, having seen how Oxford's cases jumped so quickly in a short space of time, in late June and early July. The county has been catching the city up and we advise people in all of our market towns 
and villages to adjust their judgments on COVID-19 risks accordingly. We know that the lessons of the pandemic so far is that the virus is a formidable opponent. If we put ourselves in a vulnerable position, the virus will exploit this. The fewer people we are in close contact with as we go about our daily lives, the less chance we have of contracting the virus. And now Anne has a story about the risks posed by asbestos, particularly in older buildings. Yes, that's right. Asbestos-related cancer has claimed the lives of more than 500 people across the county over the last four decades, new data has revealed. MPs have now launched an inquiry into how the material is being managed across the UK after serious concerns were raised. Asbestos exposure can lead to mesothelioma, a type of cancer that affects the lining of some organs, including the lungs. Data from the Health and Safety Executive, known as HSE, shows that the particular type of cancer was responsible for 521 deaths in Oxfordshire between 1981 and 2019. A whopping 119 of those deaths occurred between 2015 and 2019, the highest number in any five-year period since records began. The Work and Pensions Committee, which launched the inquiry, said that despite the importation, supply and news of asbestos being banned in the UK since 1999, it remains the largest single cause of work-related fatalities. The inquiry will examine the risks posed by asbestos in the workplace. The actions taken by the HSE to mitigate them and how its approach compares to, to those taken in other countries too. Though traditionally higher levels of asbestos-related illness were associated with work in industrial sites, such as shipyards. In recent years, that also expanded to other industries, including construction. But campaigners say people using buildings where asbestos is poorly maintained, including some schools and hospitals, are also at risk of contracting the deadly disease. Last week, it was announced that Ferry Leisure Centre in Summertown would be closed after asbestos debris was found during intrusive surveys in the pool plant from where the pump and filtration systems are located. Oxford City Council has been awarded a total grant of up to £10 million from the public sector decarbonisation scheme to carry out the decarbonisation works. More than 5,000 deaths every year are caused by diseases linked to asbestos exposure, including lung cancer and asbestosis, a rare lung term, rare term lung disease. Across Great Britain, 12,500 people died of mesothelioma and Great Britain, and the highest number was for any previous five-year period. The next uh, article is a worrying one, headed Infection Report Points to Cleaning Errors at Hospital. 
A report on infection prevention and control procedures at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford has found a number of failings following an unannounced inspection by the National Health Watchdog. The Care Quality Commission highlighted areas requiring improvement at the hospital on Headley Way, which is run by the Oxford University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, OUH. Inspectors visited Oxford's main accident and emergency site after the latest data revealed that the Trust had experienced an increase in superbug infections at the hospital, such as methicillin, the resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA, which is a type of bacteria that is resistant to common antibiotics. Even more, an increase in bowel and skin infections from bacteria found at the hospital premises was also recorded. Following the inspection which took place on May the 5th, a summary of findings noted there were not effective processes for monitoring cleaning frequency and completion at clinical level in public areas, with inspectors not finding any evidence of cleaning schedules. This meant there were gaps in assurances regarding cleaning in the hospital. The report added, In the emergency department we saw sharp spins in non-clinical areas and in clinical areas some were not in stands. We also saw bins that had not been closed correctly. During the inspection we saw lack of adequate storage throughout the trust with boxes and other items stored on the floor. Furthermore, signs and routings were not always clear for patients, visitors and staff, and not all areas had signs and floor markings. These were not clear, which led to confusion among staff, patients and visitors. However, despite criticism, the CQC found that the service had a vision for what it wanted to achieve and had an infection prevention and control strategy to turn it into action. In addition, staff felt respected, supported and valued, and OUH had an open culture where patients and staff could raise concerns about infection prevention and control without fear. Following the inspection, the CQC did not rate the John Radcliffe Hospital, and all previous ratings from June 2019 remain. At the time, the health watchdog downgraded the rating of the trust, which also runs the Churchill and Nuthield Orthopaedic Centres in Headington, as well as Banbury's Horton General, from good to requires improvement over the poor condition of the operating theatres and patient privacy and staff shortages. An investigation into race discrimination, bullying and harassment at the Oxfordshire Health Trust is underway after after a nurse spoke of daily abuse. The Oxford University Hospital's worker, who's been with the NHS more than 36 years, said she experienced racism in the most vile form, from three colleagues. The woman of Caribbean heritage said when she transferred to the trust at the age of 40, her manager was wonderful and encouraging. But it all changed five years ago when they retired and the department went into another team. In a statement in OUH Public Trust Board Papers, she detailed how she was systematically bullied by three team members. She said, I went from being an award-winning manager to someone who was useless, was not as good as the others, whose work was rubbished regularly and could not do anything right. A total of 28 
6.1% of the 3,052 black, Asian and minority ethnic staff claimed to have experienced harassment, bullying or abuse from colleagues in the last 12 months. An OUH spokesperson said it was working with staff members to address the problems and added we want our staff to feel confident and able to raise any perceived incidents of racism and bullying and also be assured that the Trust will be addressing appropriately to the highest level. And now getting away from health matters, this article is headed UK summer temperatures could soar to above 40 degrees C, regularly meteorologists warn. British summers are likely to regularly see temperatures of above 40 degrees C, even if humanity manages to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C, the UK's leading meteorologists have warned. 2020 was the third warmest, fifth wettest and eighth sunniest year on record, the first ever to fall into the top ten for all three variables. This summer, Oxfordshire has already seen temperatures soar to above 30 degrees C in a heatwave. Data published in the report, The State of the UK Climate 2020, revealed the average winter temperature for last year was 5.3 degrees C to 1.6 degrees C, higher than the 1981-2010 average. That makes December 2019 to February 2020 the fifth warmest winter on record, whilst the temperature last summer was 0.4 degrees C, above average at 14.8 degrees C. Early August 2020 saw temperatures hit 34 degrees C on six consecutive days, with five tropical nights where the temperature did not drop below 20 degrees C, making it one of the most significant heat waves to affect southern England in the past 60 years, the report's author said. Comparing data from the Central England Temperature Series, which dates back to 1772, the research found the early 21st century has been 0.5 degrees C to 1 degree C warmer than 1901 to 2000, and 0.5 degrees to 1.5 degrees C warmer than 1801 to 1900. Professor Liz Bentley, Chief Executive of the Royal Meteorological Society, said the world was already seeing extreme heat as a result of warming of 1.1 degrees C to 1.2 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. She said, if you take that up by another 0.3 degrees C, these heat waves are just going to become much more intense. We're likely to see 40 degrees C in the UK, although we have never seen those kinds of temperatures before. Villagers in lucky escape from blaze at midnight. People had a lucky escape from a fire which destroyed the village home in the middle of the night. Crews from Hook Norton, Chipping Norton and Banbury were called to the blaze in a home in Bell Hill, Cook Norton, after 2am last Friday. They were faced with a well-developed fire and put it out during using hose reels and breathing apparatus. The occupants had already fled property after they were alerted to the fire by their smoke alarm and nobody was hurt, thankfully. Photographs of the aftermath show the floor and walls in the kitchen completely charred. Check barbecues, say firefighters after blaze. 
Firefighters in Oxfordshire are urging people to ensure their safety while cooking outdoors after a barbecue burst into flames. The fire, which happened in the back garden of a house in Woodstock earlier this month, alerted, uh, started when a hose connected to the gas cylinder ignited. The barbecue was said to be more than 10 years old and was having its first cooking session of the year at the time it caught fire. The cylinder was removed and left to vent. The fire service is now urging people to be mindful of old cooking equipment. It said on Facebook, always visually inspect them for any damaged hose lines, along with keeping it clean and fat-free. Enjoy the sunshine and be safe. The headline for our next article is Lollipop Lady Retires After Four Decades of Crossings. A lollipop lady has retired after almost 37 years serving the same school. Jane Freegard has been helping pupils at the primary school in Ducklington, near Whitney, for nearly four decades, outlasting six head teachers and getting generations of children across the road safely. The 74-year-old has now put down her lollipop for the last time after retiring on the last day of term. Mrs Freegard said, It'll be a question of what to do with myself. I've been through six head teachers and helped the children of children I once helped. It means everything to me just to see their faces in the morning. It makes my day. I don't know how I'll cope not seeing them. They've made my day over the years and have been an inspiration to me. It's been an absolute pleasure to go out in the morning. I've really enjoyed it. I never anticipated I would do it for so long, especially when I moved to Thorny Lees. But I carried on cycling in whatever the weather. You get such a lot out of it for yourself, and I know I've done my little bit. The school will not only lose a key member of staff, but a colourful character too. At Christmas, I used to put on tinsel on my lollipop, with Elton John-style glasses and big earrings for each day over the Christmas period, said Mrs Freegard. There was one time when my lollipop blew in the wind and it went into a ditch, but I was still holding the lollipop up, even when I was in the ditch. Russell Lee, the school's head teacher, praised Mrs Freegard and said she would be a hard act to follow. He said, she's vitally important. She has seen parents as children and generations come through. She's affectionately known as Lolly and is part of the fabric of the school. She will be sorely missed. It's remarkable how long she's been doing it and she still cycles in every day. The cars can power through, but we know she's there to help the children cross safely. She's going to be difficult to replace and a hard act to follow. Donna Franklin, a former chair of the school's parent-teacher association, said Mrs Freegard had helped both her daughters plus her husband cross the, the road safely. She said, my eldest daughter, who's 23, my youngest daughter, who's 11, and my husband have all been crossed by Jane. When we first took my youngest, Jane remembered us, which was quite remarkable. She's so caring and loving and such a trooper. She will be sorely missed by the school. She adores the school and the community, and she was at the school, whatever the weather. Blenheim Estate is looking for a new shepherd. The Blenheim Estate is looking for a shepherd to help care for its thousand-strong flock of sheep, as well as in, <coughs> in its collection of rare breed British <coughs> white cattle. 
the chosen candidate would live and work on the 12,000-acre estate in the heart of Oxfordshire with its mix of farmland, ancient woodland, landscaped parkland, lakes and formal gardens. <coughs> Reporting directly to Blenheim Farm Manager Charles Gering, the role includes day-to-day management of the flock, ensuring the welfare and safety of all livestock, and along with mentoring of an apprentice. In addition to the sheep, the row will also include overseeing the care and carving of the estate's resident herd of British white cattle, which roam freely within the ancient oak woodlands, trampling down bracken and undergrowth to clear spaces for acorns to germinate and grow. The shepherd would also be expected to support other members of the team's workforce. The reintroduction of the cattle is just part of the Blenheim Estate's wider land strategy plan, which looks at innovative ways to protect, utilise and open to access to the 12,000-acre estate over the coming decades. And it says here, anyone who's interested in the vacancy can contact Rachel Leach at rlrleach at blenheimestate.com. But the closing date is July the 30th. Our next item is headed, Developer Seeks Minecraft Experts to Build Its Homes. A home builder is asking gamers to design its houses in a bid to find new talent. If you are someone who spends hours digging holes on Minecraft, or building homes on The Sims, or playing Roblox, or even Animal Crossings, your skills could be used to dig real holes and to build real homes. The developer for the lawns in Kennington Road, Abingdon, is calling for gamers across the country to digitally recreate one of its homes or developments. Open to gamers of all ages, there are three categories to enter, with prizes including children's art vouchers, an MSI curved gaming monitor, Razer streamer and broadcasting bundle, as well as a chance to secure a work placement with Red Row Thames Valley. The developer does not want the big kid gamers to miss out either, so there's also a category for adults to showcase their creative gaming abilities too. Each entry entry will be reviewed by an expert panel of judges, including YouTube gaming star Claire Siobhan, as well as group customer and market, uh, marketing director Matt Grayson, group master planning director Kevin Parker, Group Design and Technical Director Stuart Norton and Head of Talent Anne Milne. Sarah Boyce, Sales Director of Red Row Thames Valley, said As a builder committed to giving people a better way to live, our homes and communities are well known for the distinctive character and quality they offer our customers. Here at Red Row, we understand that our business is only as good as its people. We value those that make us a success and are committed to nurturing the next generation of talent. Gaming is a hobby that can sometimes get a bad reputation, yet we know that there are many talented people out there with exceptional digital ability and fantastic eye for detail. Two skills that are really important to house building. We recognise that this talent can and should be nurtured and championed, which is why we're keen to encourage gamers to channel this interest positively and consider a career in the construction industry. 
from architecture to bringing visions to life through bricklaying, there really is a career for everyone at Redrow. Digital builders from across Oxford can apply by visiting the competition page at www.redrow.co.uk forward slash recreate Redrow and emailing the image or video of their design to the relevant category before Friday, August the 27th. And now for a couple of sporting items, starting, of course, with news of the Olympics. The delayed Olympic Games is in full swing, with a wealth of sporting talent from Oxfordshire, representing Team GB in Japan. Tokyo 2020 will see our sporting stars compete for gold against some of the best in the world. With athletes from Oxford, Bicester and Kingston Bagpuis, as well as rowers from the leader club in Henley-on-Thames, the county has plenty of athletes to support. Mr Swimmer Kieran Bird made his Olympic debut in the 400 metre freestyle on Saturday morning and was doing the 800 metres freestyle yesterday. Speaking beforehand, the 21-year-old said, I think we can achieve big things. Looking at how everyone is doing in training and all of us are quite high aspirations. It's not just in the pool, but outside it too. Everyone is really motivated when it comes to diet, psychology, or the little 1% that make the difference. Tom Squires, aged 27, of Kingston Bagpuis, did his first windsurfing on a family holiday in Cornwall. Describing their games, he said, the level of windsurfing is just incredible. There are so many shapes and sizes of guys, and each have different specialities. Roa Sholto Carnegie of Oxford learned the sport at City of Oxford Rowing Club, aged 13, before making his team debut as a junior in 2013. His coxless fours are racing in the final today. Fiona Gammond of Bicester rode at Headington School and was selected for the Youth Olympic Games in Singapore, A17. She, ha- she has reached today's Women's 8 final and said, I'm absolutely loving it. The leader club in Henley-on-Thames boasts a number of rowers who use the side as their base that will be competing in the Games. Still on the sporting front, but something a little nearer to home. The heading on this one is County Route Revealed for Women's Tour Race. School school students in Bicester will get a prime position to see top cyclists zoom past as this year's Women's Tour uh, races across Oxfordshire. They will be among the crowds lining parts of the route between Bicester, Oxford, Abingdon and Banbury to cheer on elite riders in the professional cycling race. It sets off on Monday, October the 4th from Bicester's Sheep Street when about 100 riders will complete a short northern loop passing the uh, Cooper School before heading south past Graven Hill to Islip and on to Oxford. It will be stage one of the six-day UCI Women's World Tour, which has moved from its usual June slot to early October due to the coronavirus pandemic. The next peloton will sweep past the John Radcliffe Hospital and head for South Oxfordshire's Blackbird Lees 
before reaching the race's southernmost point when passing the Cullum Science Centre and then heading north through Abingdon to Ensham and past Woodstock. The cyclists will visit Bloxham before arriving in Banbury for a first time. Next, they head back out to complete a short loop of Hook Norton and Sibford Ferris. Returning to Banbury, they'll pass the Banbury Cross and Fine Lady Statue with a sprint to the line expected along South Bar Street. Councillor Liz Lefman, leader of Oxfordshire County Council, said, What a fantastic way to showcase our wonderful county to the world. I'm confident this event will bring economic benefits to our communities. I also hope the race will inspire even more people to exercise and take to two wheels, the healthy option. Hosting the prestigious race is a great collaborative effort between the County Council and our colleagues in the District Councils. Councillor Andrew Grant, Oxfordshire County Council's cycling champion, said, We want this prestigious race to leave a legacy for the county, not only a lasting economic impact, but by motivating people to be more active and improve their health. If you're travelling to a vantage point, why not cycle or walk? Leave the car at home for at least one part of your journey and get some exercise as a spectator. This is the second year that Oxfordshire will host the Women's Tour, part of a three-year commitment that began in 2019. The 2020 race was postponed until this year and different routes are planned each year to showcase, showcase the county's diversity to a national and international audience. In previous years, there have been calls to check roads for potholes after a rider crashed in 2019. <coughs> and that brings us to the end of the first part of this edition. And in the second part, we'll be introducing a, a newcomer to our reader board, Jenny Wiley and she'll be reading one or two of the stories um, taking the part of Nigel in the second part of this programme. But so we move on to this week's Reflections, which this week takes a look at one of life's simple pleasures, birdsong. The other week, when it was almost too hot to sleep, we had the bedroom window wide open. I woke up to the sound of the dawn chorus and the chack-chack of the all-too-numerous jackdaws that live in the huge conker tree behind our garden. For the past few weeks, the dawn chorus has been at its peak, as longer days and summer migrants like chiff-chaffs and warblers arrive in the UK to add their own songs to those of our own native British birds. But why is birdsong, with the notable exception of those jackdaws, so sweet? Birds can actually make far more complex sounds than other creatures, including humans. Unlike humans, birds have a double voice box. Humans make sounds using the larynx, which has just a single pipe connected to both their lungs. The vocal organ of birds, called the syrinx, has two pipes, one connected to each lung. This means that birds can create sounds from each pipe separately and simultaneously, creating a potential for a huge variety for their vocal ability. However, they need lots of practice to use each pipe properly, and their songs are not inborn. Like humans learning to talk, they have to learn songs from their parents. Learning can take quite some time. You can try to listen out for young birds who haven't quite got it. Particularly at this time of the year, in spring and summer, 
young birds are learning all the skills they need for survival, which include making and understanding their species' own calls and warnings. The musical extravaganzas of the Dawn Chorus, which poets such as John Clare have tried to imitate in words with varying degrees of success, can bring a feeling of hope and of new beginnings, especially in difficult times. Engaging with our abundant bird life is one of the simplest ways for us to reconnect with nature, even in urban areas and market towns such as Woodstock, where large-scale building projects are daily diminishing the birds' natural habitat. For the birds, and for many of us too, a fringe benefit of the lockdowns of the past 18 months has been a decrease in traffic and human activity, and the corresponding increase in the activities of our avian companions. I think it's also increased our awareness of how important birds are to our own well-being. In a poll carried out by the RSPB last year, 76% of people in England supported the suggestion that nature could contribute to the economic recovery in the UK, and 84% support the suggestion that government should increase the number of accessible, nature-rich areas in the UK. In lockdown, sales of bird food and related products such as bird feeders increased by around a whopping 80%, helped by consumers switching to online shopping from home and by garden centres continuing to stay open. Recent research from the British Trust for Ornithology estimated that here in the UK we spend, wait for it, 200 to 300 million pounds per year on bird feeding products. The sheer amount of food provided in our gardens and homes could potentially sustain up to 196 million birds more than the combined total population of many common garden species. By encouraging bird visitors to our gardens and feeders in this way, it seems that, despite habitat destruction, we have actually led to a population growth across more than 30 different bird species. Signs of hope indeed. To quote the poet Emily Dickinson, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words, and never stops, at all. So now let's flutter over to our regular quiz, and the answers from last week. I'm sure our readers would like to have a go at answering these. So question number one from last week, the Victoria Cross has which colour ribbon? Tricky one. The answer is... Crimson. Number two, slightly easier, I think. What is the most common blood group in the world? O. O, yes. Number three, if you were pyrophobic, of what would you be afraid? Fire. Fire, yes. Which actress played the part of Sybil Fawlty in TV's Fawlty Towers? Prunella Scales. Yeah. And number five, cars from which country have the letter C, the letters CH on them? Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah. Good. And so to this week's quiz. I'll try not to give the answers away because I've written them down here. Which breed of dog is the world's top dog when it comes to shepherding sheep? Question number two. 
How many permanent teeth does a dog have? Question number three. What is longer, a nautical mile or a mile? Number four. What is the capital of Finland? And finally, number five. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Who was Henry VIII's last wife? So that's that's the end of the quiz. And now before we go on to the second part of this edition, we're saddened to announce the following deaths, which were listed in the Whitney Gazette this week. On July the 6th, Shirley Margaret Marsh. On July the 13th, Isaac Charb Stiles. On July the 16th, Ralph John Davis. On July the 26th, Janet Elizabeth Dixie. And also in July, the date unlisted in the Gazette, Jean Winifred Ann Cutts. All our condolences go out to their friends and their families. And now we move on to the second part of this edition with a selection of local charity stories. The first item is read by Anne. Housing charity response moves into a new home. A new office space sharing it for space sharing initiative now hosts charity response after staff moved in at Oxfordshire Direct Services Horsepath Road Depot. ODS is a social enterprise that works on behalf of the council to provide the services to residents in the city. Response provides over 500 units of supported accommodation across the Thames Valley. It works with housing associations and private landlords to provide education, employment and training opportunities, sports and social activities. ODS, true to its guiding principle of doing good, has allowed access space in its building to be used by the charity at a low rent, so the benefit can be shared through the community. Mike Rowley, Cabinet Member for Citizen Focused Services, said, Doing good in the community is at the heart of ODS mission, and this initiative is a prime example of them doing just that. Rather than let empty office space lie vacant, they develop a creative way to help a local charity that provides vital services. Response is a partner in the Oxfordshire homeless movement and helps the City Council provide supported accommodation for people who have been made homeless, as well as other vital work with local people suffering from mental ill health. And he says, well done ODS, I'm sure Response will continue their success in their new home. Simon Howick, Managing Director at ODS, said, I'm really pleased and excited to welcome Response to, to our depot in Horsepath Road. I can see this new arrangement creating a great opportunity for partnership and for both organisations to work together in doing good for the community. Like any other housemate, 
Let's just hope they do their fair share of the washing up. We are now in conversation with one or two other charitable organisations about sharing a little more space. John McLaughlin, CEO of Response, said, This is an excellent example of a large and reputable organisation that has enabled two charities to expand their social impact by sharing valuable resources. We look forward to exploring further opportunities as a result of our close working relationship. I can't commit to the dishes, though. Response has vacated its previous offices in Blackbird Lees, which is shared with RAW, another charity that ODS worked with, RAW. This offers the additional advantage of freeing space for RAW to expand its operation at its Blackbird Lee space. Response has been delivering housing and support to vulnerable people in Oxfordshire since 1960s and last year won two county council contracts to accommodate young people. And the next item is going to be read by a new member to our reading team, Jenny. Thousands raised for a memorial of girl rescued from Ducklington Lake. Kind-hearted people have raised thousands of pounds in less than 24 hours for the memorial of a young girl who died in Oxfordshire over the weekend. The girl had been rescued from Ducklington Lake in Whitney on Sunday afternoon after reports had been made of someone struggling in the water. She was raced to the hospital, but passed away after a short time later. An online GoFundMe was set up by the victim's auntie, Amy Kinsard, and more than £2,500 have already been donated to pay for a memorial. In a statement published alongside the fundraiser, Ms Kinsard said, Sadly, on July 18th, this beautiful young girl tragically lost her life in a water accident. My brother and his partner are devastated and anything you could donate will help towards setting up a memorial for her. Thames Valley Police confirmed that officers attended with both fire and ambulance services. The girl's family have been informed and are being closely supported by specially trained officers. A spokesperson added... The death is being treated as unexplained and non-suspicious and a file will be prepared for the coroner. Our thoughts are with the girl's family and loved ones at this incredibly difficult time. A spokesperson for Oxfordshire County Council said, We are truly saddened by this awful news and send our condolences to the family and friends of the teenage girl who sadly passed away at the weekend. Following the incident... Firefighters and lifeguards have offered advice on how people can stay safe within the water. Oxfordshire County Council Fire and Rescue Service advises that Reservoirs, lakes, rivers and other inland water may look safe and inviting, particularly on a warm day, but there are hidden dangers below the surface that could make people ill, cause injury, even kill. Even on a warm day, the temperature of the water in a reservoir, quarry or lake can remain very cold. The low water temperature can numb limbs and claim lives. From the surface, it is not always possible to see what's under the water. 
This could be anything from large rocks to machinery, from shopping trolleys to branches, and even fish hooks or broken fishing line, all of which could cause injury. Moving water, such as rivers, might look calm, but there could be strong currents below the surface. Even reservoirs have currents caused by working machinery. Whether or not someone's a strong swimmer, currents can carry them into danger. Earth Trust's new laboratory is ready. The Oxfordshire Local Enterprise Partnership has announced the completion of a government-funded project to inspire young people to care for the environment. The Earth Trust's new Earth Lab at Little Whittenham near Didcot will double the charity's capacity to engage young people and provide opportunities for bringing environmental science to life. The project also sees the renovation of a former barn into a new innovation hub which will offer multi-purpose units for sustainability, conscious businesses as well as acting as an inspiring welcome for visitors. Earth Lab will provide flexible classroom space enabling Earth Trust to deliver science, technology, engineering, mathematics and art-based environmental education improving the skills and competence of people of all ages. The building of Earth Lab itself showcases a host of eco-friendly materials and features, incorporating natural building materials and uh, that lock-up carbon. Ox LEP secured £1.49 million of funding for the project via the government's local growth fund. The overall cost of the project is £2.9 million. Nigel Tipple, the Oxlep chief executive, said the completion of such a significant project is excellent news. Jane Manley, CEO of Earth Trust, said it's been fantastic to see our vision for Earth Lab and the Innovation Hub become a reality. And now two short charity items and... An unusual but important one. Firstly, Wigmakers Back Charity. The Little Princess Trust, the Hereford based charity supplying real hair wigs to, uh, free of charge to children, has selected Banbury Postiche to manufacture its wigs. The UK's number one wig making supplies company, which this year celebrates its 100th year in business will handle all of the logistical requirements associated with getting the real hair wigs to children, including the knotting and finishing of the hair pieces through to the distribution. The charity established in 2006 provides about 2,000 sick children and young people aged up to 24 years across the UK and Ireland with a free real hair wig every year. Phil Brace, Chief Executive of the Little Princess Trust, said the UK has been at the cutting edge of wig making for many centuries. It is incredibly pleasing to tap into Banbury Pastiche's logistical expertise. And the second one, Bus for Sky Hall Charity. The Oxford Bus Company has launched its latest eye-catching bus-supporting good causes with a double-decker wrapped for blue sky thinking. The local charity scooped the company's Brand the Bus competition to become the latest good cause 
to have a bus decked out in its own branding. Blue Sky Thinking supports research into the treatment of childhood brain tumours. It was set up by the family of Sky Hall, who was diagnosed in 2013. Despite surgery and treatment, he died a year later. Phil Southall of Oxford Bus Company said, The bus looks superb and we are proud to have helped another important local charity in our community. Sally Hall, director of Blue Sky Thinking, said, We are so excited to finally share the hashtag Big Blue Dream Bus with the community. A museum is urging supporters to pull together to help it raise funds to build a Second World War air raid shelter to teach younger visitors about the Blitz. Soldiers of Oxfordshire Museum Woodstock have launched a crowdfunding campaign to help build a life-size World War II Anderson shelter. The campaign is set to run for seven weeks with a goal of £2,000 to build and install the display. Anderson shelters were used in the Second World War by families as a place to hide when air raid sirens sounded, warning of potential bomb attack. The project aims to expand upon the ways in which visitors can learn about conflict and engage with the county's history through an interactive environment. Despite the pandemic, the museum is still looking forward and aiming to create an imaginative space that can connect people again while breathing life back into its galleries. Already installed at the museum is a model trench, which was built with help from local cadets when the museum opened in 2014. The trench has proved a hit with visitors of all ages and an invaluable tool when teaching school groups about the First World War. If fully funded, the air raid shelter experience will become a vital part of the museum's World War II education sessions. The education sessions teach visitors and school children about the changes to life at home during the wartime. Regular visitors will also be able to enjoy it during the museum's opening hours. The museum will also use the handling materials in their reminiscences work, which helps participants explore their memories of the past in a safe and welcoming environment. Donations of any size can be made towards the project, but there are rewards available for those making donations of more than £5. These prizes include pin badges, visitor guidebooks and museum annual passes. Those who back the project at the highest donation tier will have their name included on a commemorative plaque inside the exhibit itself. The museum has said it is vital it receives support from the community for this project as only with it can the museum continue to provide unique and engaging connections to the county's wartime heritage. Should the project push beyond its initial funding target, a number of stretch goals have been set to expand on the air raid shelter itself. These include the potential to add audio soundscapes and video experiences to the display, as well as themed events and workshops. And now Jenny takes over from 
Nigel again to read our next charity item. Mums stride out in lost friend tribute. Four mums pulled their boots on to walk a hundred kilometres to raise money in memory of a friend who died suddenly at 48. Charlotte Glover, Kate Titterton, Tracy Manley and Charlotte Hughes, all from Whitney, are raising money for Seesaw, an Oxfordshire charity which provides support for bereaved children and families. It follows the death of their friend Steph Ormond, also from Whitney. Seesaw has been helping Mrs Ormond's children, George 10 and Maddie 11, for the past six months. The friends have walked the countryside around Clanfield, the Tews, near Chipping Norton and around Whitney. Mrs Hughes met Mrs Ormond when their boys started at the Blake School in Whitney in 2014. She said Steph was a very warm, caring and fun-loving person. She would always go out of her way for her family and friends and neighbours. She was originally from Liverpool but moved down to Oxfordshire about 20 years ago and met her husband Andy in Whitney when she worked at Nationwide. She was so loved by everyone and always had a hidey high for everyone on our morning walks to and from school. Those little hidey highs could make the difference to someone's day. Mrs Ormond passed away very suddenly in January following a heart attack. Mrs Hughes said, She had been fit and well, so it was an incredible shock, and for Andy and the kids, their world changed overnight. It was the school that put them in touch with Seesaw, and an earlier crazy challenge sparked an idea on how the friends could raise cash to support the charity. Mrs Hughes recalled, Back in 2016, from memory at the school quiz after a few glasses of bubbles, our friend Kerry suggested climbing Ben Nevis at night for the Alzheimer's Society. The climb was full of laughter, giggles, tears and fear. We arrived at the top, it was pitch black, there was no view and we were shattered but we did it. Every time we would sign up for something afterwards, although it would be greeted with a no thank you, Steph would always support us and say, why don't we make a weekend of it? So this weekend we have decided, let's just do that. Mrs Hughes added, on Sunday we had a drink at the Elm Tree in Whitney and raised a glass to Steffi as it was her birthday on Monday. The group also want to raise funds for a picnic bench in her memory at Woddard's Meadow, where they would all sit most days after school. We would also like to go there religiously for the annual end-of-term shenanigans with all the children. Next week will be the first one without her, said Mrs Hughes. The friends are also holding a cake sale and raffle at the Woolgate Shopping Centre on Thursday next week, from 10.30 to 1.30 and ask that people come with their cakes that they can sell or to buy. A timber company has donated timber offcuts to Whitney Charity Guidepost Trust, which supports adults with learning difficulties. Guideposts Outdoor Wellbeing Hub received the first delivery of woodcuts from UK's leading off-site timber frame manufacturer, Stuart Mill Timber Systems, last month. The partnership will see Whitney Charity Guidepost Trust receive monthly deliveries of wood offcuts from Stuart Milne Timber Systems, which will be used in various gardening and woodwork classes for adults with learning difficulties and children with additional needs. Tanya Kirby, Senior Fundraiser for Guidepost, said, 
It's always great to get backing from local businesses who share our values, and SMTS have been very generous in providing materials for our classes and workshops. Which aim to engage adults and young people in the area in planting, woodwork, nature crafts, and cooking, all in a safe and social setting. The materials can also be used at the guideposts, the Dreamcatchers Forest School for young people with additional needs. Donated wood from Whitney-based SMTS will be used to make raised beds for dig and grow students to grow plants, flowers and vegetables, as well as in woodworking classes which help to develop skills such as dexterity while providing the opportunity for participants to connect with nature. SMTS construction process results in roughly 1.6 thousand tonnes of timber offcuts, a natural result of off-site manufacturing methods, and as a company, Stuart Mill Timber Systems has always had an environmental conscience, ensuring that 100% of its excess material is recycled. It contributes to the current government aim for the UK to become carbon neutral by 2050. Shelley Benwell, marketing manager for SMTS, said, not only are we committed to recycling the offcuts produced from our timber systems as we work towards reducing environmental impacts, we also believe in supporting the local community and those who live and work within it. And now for our final item of the evening. The final news item of the evening is on the subject of the arts, and we move from birdsong to human song and over to Nigel. Thank you. This item is headed Classic Trojan Tale Told in Opera Form. Bampton Classical Opera has presented one of Gluck's major works, Paride et Elena, in the picturesque and naturally acoustic venue of the Deanery Garden. The performances which took place over the weekend had been rescheduled from 2020, which marked 250 years since the opera's premiere in 1770. It has been given a new English translation by Gilly French as Paris and Helen. Despite its significance in Gluck's canon, Paris and Helen is a very rarely performed and little-known opera. The production has been designed and directed by Jeremy Gray, with Thomas Blunt brought in as conductor. Scored for four soprano voices with chorus and with colourful and exciting orchestration, Bampton's performances aim to bring an enchanting and sensuous work to new audiences. Gluck's opera chants the passionate and tempestuous encounter between Helen and Prince Paris of Troy. Paris woos her in a sequence of arias and ensembles including Old El Mio Dolce Ador. Set in Homeric Sparta, Trojan Prince Paris arrives to seek out Helen promised to him by Aphrodite when he chooses her as the most beautiful goddess and presents the golden apple. Despite Helen's betrothal to Menenaus, Paris attempts to win Helen with declarations of love despite the immediate impact and stranger makes on her, but thanks to his persistence and playful strategies, she succumbs. 
In a deus ex machina appearance, Pallas Athene warns of the fatal consequences of their illicit love, but her words are unheeded as the lovers depart for Troy. Bampton gathered a cast including young professionals emerging into significant national and international careers. Singing the role of Paris was soprano Ella Taylor, who won second prize in the 2020 Ferrier Awards and was making her professional stage debut. Opposite her as, as Helen was Lucy Anderson, first prize winner in the 2019 Bampton Young Singers Competition. Also new to Bampton was Lauren Lodge Campbell as Amor and Lisa Howarth as Pallas Athene. Bampton Classical Opera, a finalist in the 2020 International Opera Awards, has a reputation for discoveries of rare late 18th century operas sung in new translations. The company works with emerging young professional singers and stages productions in rural venues in Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire, as well as in London at St John's Smith Square. For information on the company, see bamptonopera.org. And before we move on to the notice board, a vote of thanks from us all here at Whitney Talking News to Mrs M Eyre of Freeland for her kind letter of appreciation and for her donation. There are a couple of interesting events this weekend. First of all, there's the Riverside Cake Stall and Tombola. Go and buy a cake or try and win a prize. On the Tombola, that's being run to um, raise money towards flood defences for a vulnerable community that was flooded in Christmas 2020. That's at 10.30 in the morning at Riverside Gardens in Whitney, Oxfordshire, OX 286DD. And then this weekend sees the start of the highly popular Summer Sunday Teas from Sunday until the 29th of August at Coombe Reading Room, which will be serving delicious homemade cakes and tea and coffee in the Reading Room Garden in Coombe from 2.30 to 5pm. There's a cup of tea or coffee waiting for you and a generous serving of homemade cake. The organisers look forward to welcoming you to this popular fundraising event in their beautiful village, that's from 2.30 to 5pm at the Reading Room, The Green, Coombe, Oxfordshire, OX 29-8NT. That's this Sunday, the 1st of August, and every Sunday until Sunday, the 29th of August. Well, that's all from us for this week. As well as listening to the USB stick you receive from us each week, there are several other ways for you to listen to all our editions, including magazines. These include Sonata Plus, email, internet, podcast and Alexa. Full details can be seen on our website at wtn.org.uk. Just follow the link, listen online. So that's all we have time for. Please remove the memory stick from the playback unit and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us. Please do so as soon as possible, as we sometimes run out of labels and pouches and are then unable to continue our service to you. Remember, if you wish to contact us, just leave a slip of paper in your pouch and we will telephone you. It only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette, the Chipping Norton News, the Oxford Mail 
and the RSPB magazine for the stories we've used tonight. Thanks also to our technical expert, Peter Brading, and our copier, Nigel James, who is also copying the memory sticks as well as reading, and to our volunteers, Penny Brading and Rachel Felder, who have been checking the pouches and memory sticks that you have returned and keeping records of all this in our register. And finally, a big thanks to our readers tonight. Oh, Alison Granger there. I'd better do that again. Sorry. And finally, a big thanks to our readers tonight, Nigel James and Anne Crawford, and to our new reader on the team, Jenny Wiley. Keep listening at the end of the programme for an info sound item which gives some highlights of this week's best radio listing. I know everyone would like to say goodbye, and so until our next edition... Goodbye. Goodbye. Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, July 31st. At 3.30 on Radio 4, the BBC continues its celebration of the life of the jazz trumpeter and vocalist Louis Armstrong, who died 50 years ago. In King Louis I of Britain, Byron Wallen sets out to determine just why Louis made such a connection with the people in the UK. To Radio 4 Extra at 4, a musical adaptation from 1962 of Jerome K. Jerome's comic novel Three Men in a Boat with Kenneth Horne, Leslie Phillips and Hubert Gregg. Also on Radio 4 Extra at 6, you can hear the intriguing sounding Ivan the Fool and Velisa the Wise, describes the magical play about a man's determination to marry with a man-eating witch, a talking doll, a dead princess and a live skeleton, all featuring in the plot. And it's the first weekend of the BBC Proms. They continue at 7.30 on Radio 3 with music from Broadway's Golden Age, including music from South Pacific, Anything Goes, Oklahoma, Carousel, On Your Toes, My Fair Lady and many, many more. Sunday... August 1st, Sunday Worship on Radio 4 at 10 past 8 is a live service for the National Evangelical Church of Beirut, the oldest Arabic-speaking Protestant church in the Middle East, looking back at the explosion that rocked the city this time last year. At 9am, Radio 4 Extra begins a second series of the adaptation of Not in Front of the Children, the 1970 comedy starring Wendy Craig. Also on Radio 4 Extra at 1, A Sting in the Tail, an adaptation of the book by conservationist Dave Coulson, founder of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Staying with Radio 4 Extra at 20 past 2, The Past is Tessa Hadley's haunting and beautifully observed family portrait, read by Sharm Thomas. There's also drama on Radio 4 at 3 o'clock, The King Must Die, the first part of a dramatisation of Mary Renault's novel based on the myth of Theseus, 
the young hero sets out to solve the mystery of his birth. And lastly, at nine o'clock on Radio 2, in the evening, Louis Armstrong remembered by Gregory Porter. On to programmes then, which are broadcast at the same time every day, Monday to Friday this week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Same time, same radio station. Radio 4, 9.45, and repeated after midnight each day, the book of the week is one more croissant for the road, in which food writer Felicity Cloak cycles around France in search of definitive versions of classic French dishes. For sports fans, and we mentioned it last week, Radio 5 Live has live Olympic coverage throughout the day from 11am and again 7pm all week. On Radio 3, at 12 noon, the composer of the week is Antonin Vorjak. Just after midday on Radio 4 and repeated at 10.45, Still Life continues Sarah Winman's story of the unlikely friendship between a British soldier and an alleged spy in wartime Tuscany. 1.45 on Radio 4, Unspeakable, features Alice Musambendi, who lost her family in the 1994 genocide in Rwanda with a series looking at how to put her story into words. Radio 4, every day this week, 2.15, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the drama How to Build a Super Tower, starring Robert Glenister. Self-made tycoon Max Silver shakes up his property portfolio and is persuaded to build a new London skyscraper. Radio 4 Extra has a number of programmes this week, taking a nostalgic look at the British summer holidays. At 2pm each day is British Summertime Begins, the school summer holidays from 1930 to 1980. And it's followed at 2.15 by Promenade Rock, a comedy chronicling events in Landwicht-on-Sea during the 1950s with Neris Hughes, still on Radio 4 Extra. Don't forget the BBC Proms is every day on Radio 3 at 7.30, back in the Royal Albert Hall with people as well. And then at 10 o'clock, still on Radio 3, the essay Open Endings, in which writers imagine what happened next in their favourite stories, including The Lord of the Flies on Monday, Virginia Woolf's Mrs Dalloway on Tuesday, Wind of the Willows on Wednesday, Anna Karenia on Thursday, and Jane Eyre on Friday. On to then the individual programmes to listen to through the week, starting with Monday, August 2nd. On Radio 4 at 2 o'clock, The Why Factor investigates the seemingly worldwide popularity of dolls. Radio 4 Extra at 2.30 continues its summer theme with Summer Over England, an evocation of summer drawn from seasonal recordings in the BBC archive from the 30s to the 1990s. 2.50, still on Radio 4 Extra, David Attenborough's Life Stories, this week looking at Nectar. Back to Radio 4 for the third round of Braid of Britain features contestants from Carmarthen, Letchworth, South London and Glastonbury. At 8 o'clock on Radio 4, the Radio Times choice This Union, The Ghosts, Kingdoms of England. In the first of a four-part series, Ian Hislop explores the story and legacy of the nation's four great Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, starting in East Anglia, the site of the Sutton Hoo excavation. Tuesday, August 3rd, A new political sitcom starts at nine on Radio 4 Extra. In the morning, Party's Over follows the fortunes of Henry Tobin, Britain's shortest-serving and least popular Prime Minister. 
Also on Extra at 2.30, Natural Histories features the sounds of crickets. Back to Radio 4 at 4.30 in the first of a new series of Great Lives. The subject is Hans Christian Andersen. Radio 4 Extra at 6.30, Soul Music looks at the power of the Largo from Vorjak. Finally back to Radio 4 at 8 for A Bad Business. 20 years on from the collapse of the Texan energy company Enron in the wake of a massive fraud, Leslie Kerwin tries to find out if it's still as easy to fleece investors of their money. Wednesday, August 4th, and for the rest of the week, cricket fans can hear coverage of the first test from Trent Bridge between England and India on Radio 4 Longwave and Radio 5 Live Sports Extra from 10.25 till 7 o'clock. Choral Evensong on Radio 3 at 3.30 comes from St Peter's Eaton Square in London. There's more sport on Radio 4 at 4pm in Sideways, when Matthew Sire tells the story of Denmark's fairy tale football win at the 1992 European Championships, seeking to uncover the secret ingredient that enabled the team to succeed against the odds. 6.30 on Radio 4 is Paul Sinner's General Knowledge. The presenter reveals facts about the history of the UK's new towns, including Stevenage, Redditch and Runcorn. And for fans of folk music, The Folk Show with Mark Radcliffe, Radio 2, 9pm. Thursday, August 5th, at 9.30am on Radio 4, Metamorphosis, How Insects Transformed Our World, this week looks at blowfly detectives. Blowflies, with their ability to smell rotting meat from long distances, may be some of the most reviled insects on the planet, and they've become central to the long tradition of forensic entomology. 11am on Radio 4, Crossing Continents, looks at the situation in Nigeria, where kidnappers have seized more than a 1,000 students and staff from schools in raids since December. Parents face extortionate demands in exchange for the freedom of their sons and daughters, and many families are now afraid to send their children to school. 2.30 on Radio 4 Extra, Tim Marlowe looks at Vincent van Gogh's passion for sunflowers. And back on Radio 4 at 3, Open Country looks at how landscape and community inspired a sound walk in Northumberland. And staying on Radio 4 at 4.30 and repeated at 9 is BBC Inside Science with Marnie Chesterton. We round off the week, Friday, August 6th at 10am on Radio 3. Wordsworth, Poet of the People, looks at William Wordsworth's response to the Industrial Revolution and contrasts his view with that of Adam Smith. While Wordsworth lamented the end of small farm self-sufficiency, Smith saw the potential of industrialisation. The drama on Radio 4 at 2.15 is Faded Glory, recorded on location in Rill and telling the story of childhood sweethearts Dave and Sue meeting again after 22 years. Their lives have taken them very different ways, while Rill, once a thriving seaside town, is now desperately trying to reinvent itself. The seaside theme continues on Radio 4 Extra at 2.30 with Sand Between the Toes, a nostalgic feature about memories of holidays on the south coast between the wars. And why not end the week with a familiar voice of Tony Blackburn on Radio 2, 7pm, as he brings you his golden hour of pop and soul oldies. That's it for another week. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable week of radio listening. TNF Soundings. 